Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City-based author Carolyn Glenn Brewer on the new 2021 book, Beneath Missouri Skies, Pat Metheny, NKC. 1964 to 72. This book reveals important details about jazz in Kansas City during the 60s and early 70s overlooked in histories of Kansas City jazz. This book spans news accounts, archival material, interviews, and remembrances portraying a place and time from which Pat still very much so draws inspiration and strength from. We cover a lot of details, macro and micro, coming out of this book. We talk about Pat and his lasting impact as one of those heralded sons of the Kansas City metro area, more specifically, Lee Summit. Enjoy the interview. Thank you for taking a minute. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. You bet. More importantly, thank you for sending over the copy of the book. It's been (laughs) very refreshing, very revealing, and it's very ever-present for me just because I've moved to Lee Summit. I mean, I've been a Kansas City resident, but I know so many things now more about Lee Summit than I ever thought I would based on Tabatini. A lot of history there. (laughs) Oh, man, there certainly is. So, First and foremost, as we kind of talked up front about the book when we, you know, we had talked about, you know, how you kind of arrived at this book. So before we actually kind of get into this book, talk to me a little bit about the journey and the voices that kind of urged you to go ahead and make this book. Um, My husband and I were having lunch with Rod Fleeman, a guitarist from Kansas City, and uh, we were mostly talking about the uh, Junior Kicks Band, uh, which was a, a band of young high school kids that kind of formed it on their own um, to, to model the, the, the Kicks Band, the Kansas City Kicks Band, which was a very popular big band at that time. Uh, and he was talking about it, Pat coming to hear them and, and all of that. And as we got more into the stories, we realized that all Kansas City jazz musicians of a certain age have their Pat Metheny stories, and it's almost turned into a, a lore of that time. Now, and later on, uh, later that evening, Rod called back and he said, we really have decided, and he's been talking to some other people, that you should write a book about Pat's time in Kansas City before he went off and became famous. Uh, that sounded like a great idea to me. Uh, I was just finishing up my book about the Kansas City Women's Jazz Festival, so I was kind of looking around for something else to do. So I approached Pat about it. I emailed him, and his first reaction was a little apprehensive. The thing about Pat is he's always wanted to make it about the music. He doesn't want his life as a human being necessarily to get in the way of the message of the music. Not that it would, but he just, you know, he he just wants to talk about the music. He's been very upfront in, in countless interviews about his time in Kansas City, the mentors he had here, how so many people actually sort of brought him up musically. So his take of the whole thing was, I don't mind being the common denominator, but I want it to be about the people who made my career possible right from the beginning. That seemed like an excellent idea to me, and he sent me a list of people that he would want included in that and emphasized some others later. You know, I I had an outline before I even began. So, you know, the more more I got into it, the more I realized that 
that really was a period of, of Kansas City history in, in jazz that wasn't as well documented. You know, there were lots of sources around, but as far as written, uh, you know, con- comprehensive written accounts of, of what was going on then and, and how Pat fit into that. So it became a lot of fun to work on. <laughs> you know, when I look back, when you just kind of wipe away all of this research that you've done and just let it ruminate your head for a minute, how big he is. Does it surprise you? I mean, is it just uh, almost astonishing to think how big and how impactful he is? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, it, it, it does seem kind of astounding that someone I first know as, as a, a friend of my little brother's would be such a, a household name in jazz. But having watched his progression while he was here and listening to him and, of course, hearing other people talk about him, too, at the time, uh, it's not surprising. He had his own style, his own sound. You know, he, he had a vision right from the beginning. And a lot of that had to do with recognizing early on that he wanted to always play of his own time period. Of course, the, the part of Kansas City Jazz that's probably best known throughout the world is the swing era. Uh, and what was going on at, at 18th and Vine in the 30s. He was drawing from that. He certainly had mentors that had connections to that, but he never wanted to replicate or, or you know, kind of go back into to the older styles. He was always looking forward. And, of course, the time period that he first started developing that style of his own, there was a lot of, there were a lot of things happening in jazz that, that he kind of... Um, identified with and latched onto in a sense. You know, a lot of the, the newer guitar styles that he uh, took what he wanted from and, and then moved forward. Uh, watching him, even briefly, you could see that he had a trajectory that he was very secure with, and, you know, he, he was going to go for it. And there was an awful lot of hard work that went into this, too. I mean, yes, he is a good a, a genius, but... That genius was born of dedication and and lots and lots of practicing. So, you know, that in itself would pay off. Um, so I'm not surprised that he's he's where he is. He he's always been a, a a really nice, kind human being too, and that goes a long way. It is kind of surprising when I think back of where he was when I first knew him, <laughs> or even yeah. knew of him because of him being my brother's friend. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, there's so many figures that were kind of uh, brought to light in this book that were huge. And I know for both Mike and for Pat, John McKee was huge. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you may have learned about John that you, maybe you didn't realize as far as his powering influence over that Matheny musical bug that was born. I don't think I realized how... Soon he was an influence. And, of course, he was first an influence of Mike. Uh, John was five years older than, than uh, or I guess four years older than Mike and nine years older than Pat. So Mike is the one who first had contact with just from playing. He, uh, he lived, I think it was two doors down from them, uh, and he already had a reputation of being the go-to piano player in town if you needed an accompanist for a solo or somebody to fill in some background music during a, a dinner or something like that. You know, John was the person that people called. Um, so right away he was introducing them. In fact, you know, Pat's 
frequently said that hearing four and more is what turned him on to jazz, hearing the, the Miles Davis album, Four and More. Uh, I think Seven Steps to Heaven was the tune that actually really resonated with him, but uh, that album came from John. Uh, he loaned it to Mike, and Mike played it, and Pat heard it. So uh, some of his very first influences were John. John was a, a force of nature. He was an incredible guy. I was fortunate to know him pretty well. And he, besides being an excellent musician he and, and a very original thinker, he also wrote poetry. He he was a, he kept diaries. Mike has a, a book about uh, the conversations or the, the letters that they sent back and forth to each other when Mike lived in Boston. And, and they're brilliant. You know, all of the, the correspondence is universal. It's not just about two friends from Lee Summit. And I don't think I really understood how influential he was on so many people. Uh, I knew he was influential on me. He was one of the first, he was the first person that took my ambitions to write seriously. I was surprised at how many other, mostly musicians, said, yeah, you know, if John thought something was cool, it was cool. And I got to wonder, too, one of the things that that's very big in the lineage of Pat that comes up all the time is Mike. And as much as I think those two have kind of distanced themselves musically from each other just because they each are kind of their own entities, I think it's irrefutable that their lineage and their lines are very, very close together. So my question, based on what you've learned, how influential do you think each of their lives were on each other and how that plays out even into today? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I know, well, first of all, I know that Mike is very, very proud of his brother and always has been. But, yes, he he was the the star in the family for a long time, Mike was. Even though I didn't go to high school in Lee Summit, I went to the neighboring high school, uh, Ruskin. Um, our band directors were good friends, and a lot of the band kids from both um, schools went to the same band camps and were in the same all-district and all-state bands and things like that. So um, I knew Mike early on from that, way before my brother even knew Pat. Um, so I knew him as the star trumpet player. Um, you know, he was he was always the soloist with the Unity Band, which was a summer band at, at Unity Village. He was the, I think he, they said he played like five or six solos per season, um, and I played in that band for a couple of years, so you know I had that uh, common experience with him too. So he, you know his his direction right from the beginning was going in a completely different way. He was much more in tune to the classical world and 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 the band world, and then joined the army and was in the army band. So he toured with the army band most of the, his time in the army. So he was in a completely different direction, and I I think. In some ways, Pat's the one that turned him on to jazz more so than than that Mike discovered on his own. Although he, you know, he was he was listening to it, he was incorporating it into his his musical process, but he wasn't really playing it that much until Pat kind of pulled him in. Um, but I also know that Pat was very very connected to to Mike's early musical experience. Just the whole atmosphere of that home, of the Matheny home, where music was was a major part of the family's life. So, you know, Pat was just absorbing it all the time. And, and having a brother who was constantly performing, you know, kind of drawing all these other 
styles into the to the family too. You know, Pat definitely benefited from that. I mean, his ears were always open to everything. A lot of that came from Mike's experiences. Going into this book, and and you delve into very specific topics, and I'm sure the idea is there's going to be a lot that you're going to impart on people that they didn't know, lots of revelations. But for the author too, there has to be a level of uh, realizations that you come to during the process. What surprised you the most about the life of Pat Metheny after you did this research that you didn't quite know before? Well, one thing I discovered is that he was truly as happy a person as I remember him. <laughs> that wasn't really anything new, but it was confirmed. You know, he always had a smile on his face, and, and for a lot of the time that I knew him back in those days, he had a mouth full of braces, so it was very obvious when he smiled. I mean, it was a, it was a remarkable smile. Um, and he always had such a positive attitude about uh, everybody's playing, everybody's contribution to the music. And, and like with John, finding out that John was more influential than I realized, same thing with, with positive attitude. You know, people just, when they were around him, they realized oh, I have something to contribute to. And when I contribute it with Pat's playing, that makes for a really fun time. <laughs> so they were all learning from each other. I don't think I fully understood just how much playing he did while he was here. Because remember, this was the time when he was in high school. Uh, I mean, I started in 1964 when he first heard the Beatles and, and Miles Davis and took off on and his musical explorations. But the time he was first playing in public, which would be basically 68 to 72 here in Kansas City, he was playing all the time. I don't know how he even found time to sleep, let alone go to school. And he says he didn't do much studying, but he played steady gigs, but then he also, he'd leave a steady gig and go to after-hours clubs. Or on his night off from a steady gig, he'd go sit in with somebody or... Uh, go to jam sessions. I mean, he was constantly playing. In fact, one of the things that my brother remembered was that he would go over to Pat's house to to jam with some other guys. They had a, a little group that uh, would get together every weekend, and they would play for hours. And sometimes, if they came during the day, they would play all day. And when they finished playing, they would go upstairs and listen to records, uh, which was their musical uh, theory education. A lot of times. But the whole time, Pat would have his guitar in his hand, and he'd still be going up and down the fingerboard, even after they'd played for six hours straight. It was something that he was driven to do, but again, driven out of a love of the music. So the, the, the scope of how serious he was about all that, I think, surprised me in some ways, because it just really didn't allow for any of the other things that high school boys generally spend their time doing. Somehow still ended up to have girls around him, but <laughs> I mean, he, he wasn't lacking for female attention, uh, you know, he, he wasn't, he was also not spending hours on the phone to a girl or, you know, going to movies very much and things like that. So, you know, you've probably just been totally overfilled with stories about Papatini. What's your favorite one? What What is what is one of the stories that you heard that you like the best? Oh, man, that is a, that's a tough question. Well, one of the things that and, and I, I kind of remember some of this, but I didn't really understand what was exactly was going on with the whole uh, Jesus Christ Superstar story. 
and and that was pretty interesting. Um, we talked about this a little bit before, but it was the year that Pat was a senior in high school. A production of Jesus Christ Superstar came to Kansas City, and it was one of the very first performances of of that musical. And there was some kind of mix-up problems with casting where the bass player who had been contracted to to play that, which who was Chris Brubeck, Dave Brubeck's son, was actually recast as as a cast member instead of playing in the pit. So they when they got to here, they needed a, a bass player right away. Now, Pat, of course, built his reputation as a guitarist, but he also was playing bass quite a bit and was an excellent reader. I guess they they called the union and called the, the people who did booking for various venues in town and said, we need a, a guitarist and probably a young one who would be willing to play this kind of music. And Pat got the call, so he actually was the bass player on one of the first productions of Jesus Christ Superstar. But the funniest part of the whole story is that they were actually doing the rehearsals at a farm out near Lee Summit. He would get out of school to do this, to do these rehearsals. And Life Magazine came out to do a spot on it, and they were taking a lot of pictures. And they wanted a picture of, of the cast and, and band standing in a field. And, of course, this was like 1972, a lot of hippie-looking people for a production like that. And Pat got in there, and then they said, well, he needs to not be in the picture because he's way too straight-looking. And, of course, Pat's known for his hair now, but at the time, <laughs> he had a Lee Summit High School-type <laughs> haircut. So he didn't get to be in the picture of the cast of Jesus Christ Superstar because his hair was too short. <laughs> you know, the one thing that I think is alluring about Pat, and I don't bring this up because I want there to be any subtext of any, I don't know, any speculation, but, you know, by the train depot downtown, there's a big sign proclaiming. It's very clear he's from Lee Summit. As someone that works in radio, I hear musicians from all over the world talk about Pat Metheny because he's from Lee Summit. You know, sometimes people come from the Kansas City metro, but it's very specific that he's from Lee Summit. Lee Summit now is probably one of the most, you know, gro biggest growing areas in the Kansas City metro, and it's getting very well known on its own as just Lee Summit. And I know that Pat doesn't come through Kansas City as much as he does before, and my question to you is this. Is there a level of him that does not come back and do performances because of maybe what he has even talked about as being kind of the jazz boat that sailed here in town? Or is he just kind of putting that away because that was a part of his life that he's moving away from? What do you think kind of the mincing of the future of Pat Metheny possibly coming back to his hometown being? I am not, certainly not privy to a lot of that information as far as uh, bookings and things like that, although I have heard people say that various musicians in town have said that it's hard for him to uh, pack a, a place here in Kansas City and that, uh, I mean, he's been here many times, but I think his parents were the biggest draw, and Mike, um, now that both parents are gone, I don't think he comes through as, as much, but... Um, I think there's a, a venue issue. You know, I'm, I know that Lee Summit is very near and dear to his heart and that he sees it as 
as a, a tremendous place to grow up. It's the iconic small town America of the 50s and 60s for sure. Uh, it's a charming little town today, I think. It, you know, it has a lot of appeal. But I don't know. I think his, his touring is so worldwide that it's, it's difficult for him to, to work a tour that brings him through Kansas City for a, a playing opportunity just for, you know, for whatever reasons. <laughs> still very close to people in the area and still keeps in contact. And I guess that's the other thing too that I'm I that, that kind of blew me away in the book, so to speak, was that, you know, people like Dave Scott and Rod Fleeman and others played a huge role in his early yeah. development. And yeah. I think about the enduring spirit of Kansas City. Whenever I talk to musicians, and I know you know this very well too, one of the very first things that Kansas City musicians will say is that there is this spirit of everybody wanting to support each other, everybody supporting the the progress or the fame that they get into. And I wonder if a part of the happiness that Pat has is due to that general spirit that's gone on for decades and decades here in Kansas City. Yes, I think, I think so. Uh, you know, the whole fact that the people that he played with early on were really musical mentors to him. They weren't just friends. They weren't just, you know, people that he had heard about and, and wanted to sit in with. They were, they took him under his, their wing and a lot of those people had connections to generations of of kansas city jazz so he was he was getting a lot of it kind of by osmosis but i yeah i think that there was so much encouragement at an early age uh and 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 in very constructive ways for instance pat's first claim to fame with Kansas City musicians was that he could sound exactly like Wes Montgomery when he was 16, 15 and 16 years old. And, you know, they couldn't tell if it was. did a lot of that. You know, that was kind of his go-to sound for for quite a while. But some of the, the older, experienced, well-traveled uh, jazz musicians suggested him, some of them more forcefully than others, that he really needed to develop his own sound, that he needed to quit sounding like Wes and start sounding like Pat. Even though it wasn't the easiest thing he ever did, he ever did. He really worked hard to to take that to heart and and really change how he was playing so that it wasn't just a a copycat thing, but you know, using his his own his own directions that his, you know his musical sense was telling him to go. He incorporated a lot of what other people were uh, had to bring to the table. Yeah, to, to his own plane and, and took it from there. But I think he just always had, and still does, had such an incredible sense of the interior of sound that was joyful, even when the tunes weren't particularly happy tunes. You know, they weren't they aren't all... I mean, well, both Mike and, and Pat can make a ballad just drop you to your knees. I mean, you know, the, the, the empathy that comes out of the tunes are just am, am amazing. So it isn't always happy music, but there's always a joy of what music brings to people at the core of it. And I think that's what people respond to, even if they don't understand the, 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 certainly the theory of it or even if it's a style that they have particularly studied they respond to that, that joy that's at the core of everything he does. My final question to you is this. At the end of the day, at the core, at the essence of this new book, 
what do you want people to understand about patent theory? What do you want them to take away from what we could easily consider as the second greatest jazz musician to ever come out of Kansas City, along with Bird? He will always forever be known as one of the uh, proverbial sons of Kansas City. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, in, in 25 words or less, right? <laughs> it's a tweet, uh, yes. <laughs> part of it is just that, what I've just said, that that he is always in, in joy and a love of the music, that he he wants people to understand what music can bring to their lives, that it isn't always necessarily what they're, they're used to hearing, it isn't necessarily their favorite style, but that there's always something there that they can draw from and either for solace or spirit lifting, you know, what, whatever is in need. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say that through the pandemic, his music is what got them through, you know, just yeah. being able to listen to that, to draw on that in the darkest hours. Um, but that it didn't come just from his genius, that it came from a lot of hard work and dedication a commitment to the music, a commitment to sticking to his plans, um, you know, just always keeping that in mind, you know, never getting sidetracked where it would have been very easy to get sidetracked into other things. The music always held firm. Wonderful. Carolyn, thank you for opening up about the book again. Thank you for sending it. I look forward to profiling it on the show. Thank you. Good luck with it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest authors and musicians in Lee Summit, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Carolyn for her time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.